0: Well, we begin a brand new series starting right now, and Pastor Marty asked if I would begin this series on the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit, we're responding to a question, and the question is this, what should a Christian look like? Meaning, what are the characteristics and the qualities of a follower of Jesus? What should be present in their lives? Not what should a Christian know, important question, but that's not the main question of this series. Not what should a Christian do, also important question, but not the main point of this series. What we're doing is we're diving into these characteristics that should be in the lives of everybody who claims to be a follower of Christ. And to answer the question, we're turning to a couple sentences in the writings of the Apostle Paul in a letter he wrote to to Christians living in the town of Galatia. It's in the fifth chapter, and this is what Paul says. This is what a Christian's life should be like. He calls it fruit. He says the fruit of the Spirit should be love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then Paul goes on to say, nobody's ever written a law against any of these things. Now, before we get into the actual series, there's just a couple things to point out here. First of all, Paul calls it the fruit. Now, I don't know about you, but for many years of my life, I called them the fruits of the Spirit, and and that's okay, but that's not what Paul calls them. He says it's the fruit. It's not many things. It's actually one thing, that this is all growing in your life, so there's a little bit of bad news woven in that. As I read that list, you might have gone, check, check. Sort of check. Not at all. Check. Nope. Check, 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 check. I feel pretty good. I'm seven out of nine. And what Paul would say is, no. No, if um, if two on this list are kind of low in your life, then that's as mature as you are. It's not a curve. You You need all of these in your life. Because it is a fruit. And as we begin this series, we're going to start with the very first one, love. Love gets pride of place if you read the New Testament, at least. But even if you read the Old Testament, the word love appears all throughout the Bible. This is the word. If you, if you make a grocery list, what is the first thing at the top of the list? The thing you do not want to forget. And in my household, it's Diet Coke. Always at the very top of the list, even if we have plenty in the garage or the fridge, we still want to keep that at the top of the list. Very important. Love is pride of place. It goes at the very top of the list. In fact, some have suggested the rest of the list are just elements of the first thing, love, but we're going to deal with each individual piece. So that leads us to a really important question, and this is what we're going to respond to today. What is love? I'm a child of the late 70s and early 80s, and I remember one of the musical poets of my era questioning, I want to know what love is. But if you know the song, by the way, some of you will be humming that song the rest of the day. You're welcome. And if you know the song, you know that the songwriter, or at least the singer, wasn't responding to a question of, but what is God's love for me? He's thinking of a different kind of love. So what is this love that we're speaking of? There was a great little book written a little over 60 years ago that was actually based off some radio series that an Oxford professor, C.S. Lewis, wrote. It's called The Four Loves. And I want to zip through just by way of a way of framing this idea of love using Lewis's uh, writings to help guide us along. Lewis said there's four loves that are ancient, but they're very modern. They existed then, and they live out now. And the first one is that feeling of being in love. The old Greek word for it is eros. It's this idea that I'm so passionate about this person that I might do silly and reckless things. I might write poetry to them, even though I'm not a poet. I might compose a song for them, even though I have no musical ability. I I might annoy them with with gifts and flowers and candy, even though they don't want those things, because I'm in in love. And you know that you're in love. In fact, some of you remember that feeling of being in love, and and because it will cause you to do things that maybe some of your friends think, now don't do that. Some of you have been the recipient of advice, like, Uh, you shouldn't date him. You shouldn't date him. Raise your hand if you've ever received that advice. Uh, Actually, raise your hand if after 40 or 50 years, you're still sitting next to the guy or the gal. I, I know some of your stories. I know some of you are like, yeah, everybody said it wouldn't work, and we're still hoping, but 50 years in, it's looking pretty good. Doesn't always work that way. Feelings of in love sometimes bring us to people we shouldn't be with, and later, it turns out, shouldn't have been with them. But that's eros. It's just so passionate, and it was the Greek's favorite type of love. Eros was the word they used to describe the way the gods loved each other, and the gods loved people, and the people loved the gods, and it wasn't always PG-13, if you catch my drift. But then there's another type of love, and if eros is passionate way up here, then the other type of love is affection. This is storge in Greek, and Storge is, maybe some would describe it as ho-hum, but many a fine relationship, many a fine marriage started with Eros, turned into Storge, and everybody's quite happy with the way things are. Storge just gets used to the other person. They, they, they like them. They're, they're, they're enjoyable to be around. They have enough in common. It's good. And, and not to be diminished, Storge is an important kind of love, but it's maybe a bit too average for some people. And so Lewis said the other type of love that's an important type of love is friendship or philia kind of love. And this kind of love is in short supply. Interestingly enough, over 60 years ago, he said there's just not enough friendship kind of love in the world today. And if you keep up on cultural trends, one of the current concerns is that friendship is in decline today. And he said that 60 years ago. The friendship is shoulder to shoulder. If eros is nose to nose and eyeball to eyeball, it constantly talks about itself. Friendship never talks about itself. In, uh, in feelings of in love, at least in my era, we would have a, a DTR. This is where we would define the relationship. What are we? Are we serious with each other? But in friendship, if ever you are like, hey, we need to have a DTR, friendship's over because you just made it real weird. Friends don't talk about, hey, what kind of friends are we after all? Are we really good friends? If you have to ask that, the answer is no, you're not. No, no. Stop. But, but that's an important kind of love. But, but when the writers of Scripture were wrestling with how to translate Hebrew words into Greek words for love, and uh, the gospel writers and Paul and Peter and others were trying to figure out a good word for the way God loves us. They, they thought eros is not appropriate and not for that kind of description. And storge just doesn't say enough. And friendship, yeah, we could be friends with God, but that, that also just doesn't speak to the, to the depth of love God has for us. And so they turned to an unused, seldom used Greek word. And if you've been around church any length of time, you've heard this word before. We call Agape. If we were British, we'd call it agape. Either way, it's a different kind of love. It's this wholehearted kind of love. It's a love that goes in with eyes wide open. It has depth to it. And uh, those who translated the Old Testament into Greek, they used agape to describe love over 300 times and the writers of the New Testament used it over 250 times. By the way, they only used eros once in the whole Bible. It's in the book of Proverbs and it's around adultery. So uh, it's not that eros as love is wrong. In the wrong way, it could be, well, it could be inappropriate. So so agape became the favorite expression for the love God has for his people and the love that God has in mind for his people to express to one another. So how do we define? This is this first question. How do we define love? Well, let's, let's define love this way. Love is the willful, meaning I'm putting thought into it. My brain is engaged. I'm going in with eyes wide open. I am not overlooking the faults and flaws of other people. It's willful, but it's wholehearted. I'm all in. I'm not reserving myself. I'm not pulling back. It's this willful, wholehearted expression that honestly wants. Now, this is different. It wants what's best for the other person, not what I want from the other person, not the feelings I get around this person. This is, I want what's very best for them. And and that is this New Testament idea of love. So when Paul began to describe the the manifestation of God's presence in the life of a believer, he starts with, he goes, that kind of love is the quality in a believer. This kind of expression of love. So this leads to a second question then. What, What does this love do in you? or in me? How does this love bring a transformative impact effect on us? And for that, I want us to turn to a different passage of scripture. It's a passage of scripture that even people who rarely go to church know, because it is a passage of scripture that is read at weddings quite frequently. If you have been at a wedding in the last, say, five to 50 years, odds are you have at some point encountered this passage of scripture. And I need to tell you, you can read it outside of weddings. It's a lovely passage of scripture, even though it's often read at weddings, It speaks to far more than the love a bride and groom have for each other. Here is where it starts. It says, and this is from the writings of the Apostle Paul. He said, if I speak with the tongues of men or of angels, but I don't have love, I'm just a resounding gong. I'm just a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. And I, if, if I have faith that can move mountains, that's some serious faith, but I don't have love, I'm what? Nothing. I'm nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, some of your translations say to be burned, that's some hardship, then, and I, and I, that I may boast and I don't have love, I gain nothing. And we all, we all know people like this incredibly talented, insanely talented. They rise to the top in every organization. People want to be around them. People want to be them. They have, it seems like, all the gifts. But then you get close to people like that. Not all, but you get close to some people, and you go, wait a minute. They're hollow. I'm not saying people at the top are hollow. I'm saying, for many of us in this room, you got around some of the people you admired, and you go, wow, they're really selfish and self-centered. They had gifts, but boy, they, they were just, it was just all one, one way street to themselves. And if, if, if you embody that kind of talent without love, then what do you got? Some temporal kind of stuff out of the deal. No, you you come away with nothing, and so, Paul then goes on to explain what love really is. This is how he defines it. He says, um, love, love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor. No, no, no. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily what? Angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. No love. love doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always helps, it always, it always perseveres. A little fun fact about me that no one's curious to know is that this is the first passage of scripture that I memorized of my own volition. Nobody asked me to memorize that. I memorized it. You know why? Because in youth group, I was trying to woo a girl I had a crush on. And I thought, <laughs> if, I, if I throw a little romance scripture at her, she'll see the true guy that I am. And it didn't work. (laughs) She she evidently understood how Bible Bible was to be interpreted and applied, and it wasn't to woo a girl you had a crush on. But this is far more than crush type of stuff. In fact, when this is read at weddings, we all ought to be in awe. It ought to take our breath away. Because, you know, we've all been there. I'm usually two feet away from the couple at the time. And they're looking at each other. I will always feel this way about you. And I want to say no, you won't. <laughs> you'll, you'll, your, your love should mature and grow, but the way that it's percolating right now, we can all see the electricity between the two of you, and it's annoying. Stop it. <laughs> I have literally whispered, okay, you've kissed long enough. You know, I've, No one else can hear it, but I say it. You know, I, no, no, th- this, is, this is so much more mature than that. That that's beautiful. Don't get me wrong; it is beautiful, and I still feel that way about my wife. So, but it's so much more than that. And so, what I'd like us to do is just take a moment on each one of these little attributes, because this is the definition. This is this is bringing bringing it into HD color for us. And so, Paul says um, that this kind of love is patient, and I know some of you are like, oh, "I'm patient." My spouse took forever to get ready this morning and I barely complained at all. I'm a patient person. That's not the kind of patience. <laughs> patience is, uh, in all relationships, we encounter bumps and bruises. People rub us the wrong way or they say the wrong thing at the wrong time. And, and a patient person takes it in stride. They, they, they have a big picture in mind. They, they are able to, to deal with things they don't whine and complain. How many of you enjoy whining and complaining? It should be all of our hands. But how many of us enjoy listening to people whine and complain? None of us, right? None of us enjoy it. And a patient person, they just don't make sport of whining and complaining. No, um, love is kind. This is a, a person who is so gentle to their friends and comes alongside them when They're struggling. They don't story top the pain that they're having. They don't say, wow, that just sounds terrible. I can't believe you've been treated that way. If only you knew how badly I've been treated. Let me tell you (laughs) that that that's not a a kind person. A kind person goes, tell me I'm here for you. They love they, they don't envy. This kind of love doesn't doesn't look at the the things of another person's life and go, why can't I have that? Because we all have the friend. They have the house we want, the car we want. They have the vacations we want. They have the kids we want. And, and, and thanks to social media, we know they have them because what do they do? They document it, right? That's what they do. And so what do we do? We document back at them. But no, 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 it, a real love doesn't envy. It actually celebrates. When, those th- when we see those things, we say, God, thank you for those things in my friend's life. Don't let those become definitive of my friend, but let them enjoy them in a way that is healthy for them. Doesn't envy. It, it doesn't boast. Is not proud. It, it doesn't say, I'm a real catch. I'm a real fine. Boy, are you lucky to have me around. A couple of weeks back, I was, uh, I was looking at some different news stories, and a headline caught my attention, and uh, the headline read, um, "Famous, beautiful movie stars married to ordinary people." And because I guard my time well, I clicked on it. <laughs> and sure enough, Sure enough, if I told you the names of these people, some of you are going to Google this article and, watch, and look at it later today, and you'll agree with me, famous, beautiful, successful people, and the people they're married to, you could walk by at Target or Walmart, and you, you wouldn't, they just looked like ordinary people like us, and the first thought I had was, well, well good for them, I guess, to be married to somebody so ordinary, but then I thought, those ordinary spouses have the internet too. How does that feel? Like they're just looking at news one day and they're like, hey, I wonder who's married to somebody. Or- Wait, uh, that's my picture. I'm the ordinary. And then I thought if that was me, I'd repost the article and be like, yeah, I won, you know, that's, it worked out. But, but real love doesn't look at the equation that way at all. Doesn't say, why, you're lucky to have me around. Thinks, I'm very fortunate to have you as a friend, to have you in my life. They don't dishonor. They don't bring dishonor to themselves. They don't bring dishonor to other people. A few weeks back, the Queen of England passed away, and the whole world appropriately took a moment and paused and remembered the legacy of someone who'd had a profound impact on the world. And because we're Americans, instead of being focused on that, our main focus was on how Harry and Meghan would be treated now that they made a wise choice of moving to the U.S. And so the question was, because apparently there's tensions in the royal family. I don't know any of them personally, but I picked this up from the news that would Harry be treated poorly or would he throw a fit and everybody behaved? And this was quite celebrated that everybody behaved. And I thought, well, well, why wouldn't they behave? If you love your grandmother and you love the country of your origin, you'd behave. If you didn't behave... If Harry threw his hat down and stomped on it, I would welcome him to move to Vancouver, but not L.A. You know, I mean, keep on flying north, my man, but stay out of this country. Like, that would be dishonorable. And love doesn't act in a way that's dishonorable. It's not self-seeking. We, we live in a culture, all cultures practice a degree of what's called reciprocity. Ours, some cultures, that's really based on reciprocity. But reciprocity goes like this. I help you, you help me. And that's good. That, that's okay. But if it's, I help you with the expectation that you must help me in the way I want help, well, that's self-seeking. That's dressing up selfishness under the umbrella of some sort of cultural norm. And that's not, a, that's not loving. That's not mature. No, it's not, uh, it's not easily angered. And for some, this is a toughie. Uh, some people are born at a seven on a 10 point anger scale. It's just, it's from your youth or some experience you had in life. And it's just doesn't take much and boom. But when the spirit of God moves into your life, he reorients some of those passions. And so as a, 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 the fruit of the love of God grows in your life, you, you take that again in stride. Back to that first one, love is patient. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't keep a logbook. This this reminds me of a story uh, that I heard many years ago. I'm quite certain it's not true, but I like the story enough. I got to repeat it. The story goes like this. There's a ship's captain. It's the late 1800s, and he's increasingly frustrated at his first mate. His first mate is constantly inebriated, and this bugs him. And so Besides it being dangerous to the vessel, it's just an irritant. And so he begins to keep track in his captain's log every night. First mate drunk tonight, first mate drunk tonight. And this goes on for weeks until finally the first mate gets his hands on the captain's log and reads all of these recorded details of his problems with alcohol. And so the first mate doesn't know what to do. He thinks I could wreck my career. So he goes to his log that night and he just writes one sentence captain finally sober tonight. (laughs) Now it's fictional story. And the captain, I hope in the real story, if it was real, would have had a conversation with his first mate and not just kept record of it. And it's not right for the first mate to besmirch the captain, right? Okay. But it illustrates a point. Some of us keep a logbook. We're accountants. Did this today, did this today. Don't say anything, just hold it in, hold it in. And then there's a celebratory encounter when the account log gets full enough and it's brought out and there's a party thrown by attacking the other person and says, look at all these things you've done. And love doesn't operate like that. Love has conversations, certainly, as they need to have conversations, but just doesn't store up the wrongs. The, the, this, um, this type of love doesn't delight. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Another way of, of, of thinking of this is it, when the love of God is shining bright in you, you're a principle-centered person, that you don't change your principles, or better yet, the principles God has given us. We don't change the principles God has given us to accommodate the people we like. We love the people enough to hold the principles. And so the kind of love rejoices in what is true. And finally, Paul bundles together the last four. This is how he puts it it always protects, it always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Paul could have put it another way. Paul could have said, you know what love does? Love just extends the timeline, it doesn't lower the bar. Love never lowers the bar of expectation, of God's expectation on us and one another, but it extends the timeline. It works with people for a longer time than maybe people who don't have God's love in them or willing to work with people. Now, I, I don't know about you, but when I read that and really know that, I think to myself, who loves like that? That is, that love is in, in very short supply. That kind of love that kind of love comes from God. In fact, some have noted you could take love out of the First Corinthians 13 passage and you could replace it with God and the passage still works. If you were really talented, did all kinds of stuff, but you don't have God, you're nothing. God is patient. God is kind and so on. And so when that kind of love is sown like a seed in the life of a believer, and it begins to grow and sprout in the life of a believer, and it begins to bear the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the believer, it not only blesses and transforms their life, but it transforms those around them. And so that leads us to a third question. And the third question is, what does does this kind of love do for others through you, through me? Because if God's love is in me, it's, just, it's not just for me to enjoy, surely I should, but it should flow through me so others get to enjoy that kind of love of God flowing through me. And for this, we will turn to a, a different passage of scripture. This is, this is in a letter towards the end of the Bible written by one of Jesus' closest disciples, the Apostle John. This is in 1 John, and, and, it, and it goes like this, Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not know God, uh, whoever does not love does not know God because God's love. And, and, and he's saying that this originates with God. It's, in, it's from God. that This type of love doesn't originate with us. It originates with God. And because God gives it to us, that it ought to help forge some connections with other people. And then he says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God. We didn't love him to begin with, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins while we were on the outside. God was devising a way to bring us to the inside. That kind of love that has an outward expression should flow through us. And then, and then John goes on and he says, he says this, he says, dear friends, I love the intimate way in which John speaks. John writes this way in his letters, the epistles, and he writes this way in the gospel of John. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we all, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we, if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And, and so I. What John's saying is that there is this intimacy of a personal God who loves us in a personal way. And because the personal God loves us in a personal way, we as personal people ought to love others in a personal way. Not in just some bland, oh yeah, I love, but in a I know their name and I extend care to them. That kind of love. Now, now I know uh, for some of us, uh, you you have such a warm and and personal relationship with God, you think to yourself, yes, Bill, I I believe that, but I also believe that I have a a qualitatively different relationship with God. My relationship with God is warmer and more intimate, and I hope you feel that way. It's it's embodied in a bumper sticker I saw uh, the other day, Uh, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. Took me half an hour to find it, and I bought one and put it on Marty's car. <laughs> Don't tell him, though. He hasn't figured this out yet. It's good to feel that way. I hope you feel like you're God's favorite because you have the, God has the capacity to have you and me and all of us as his favorite. Uh, Karen and I are parents of three kids, wonderful kids and every now and then they play a little game who do you love the most and the answer really is yes we look i mean how a parent has you have two kids then you have a third and and weird enough you love the third and you, you love them now i've never had you know i don't have like six or seven i mean if you have that might stretch it you might go well i don't love that one but I think, I think even my friends who have big families are like, no, actually, weird enough, the parental love, just it, it doesn't get divided up. You love your kids. You love your kids, and God loves us. So what does this kind of love do for one another? Because if, if you, if you kind of know one of the codes that's in the New Testament, whenever the term one another is used, it's actually used expressively of those inside the household of faith, those inside the church. That the one another is looking after fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I'd suggest to you that there's just a handful of ways that, that um, this would be transformative in the way we interact with others. First of all, this kind of love will give us a family to belong to. Not everybody comes from a healthy family. Even people who come from a healthy family could use more family. And so this kind of love gives you a family, but it'll, it'll help us love people that annoy and irritate us. Because if you're in a family there's no question, you're going to get this in a family. I, some of you might be bill. I don't know anyone who annoys me or irritates me. If you don't have anyone in your life that annoys and irritates you, but you have friends, you're that friend. (laughs) You're the one that annoys and irritates them and they're praying for you, but they still love you. But, but this is the beauty of it, is that, that the way God's love works is like, yeah, we're people. Every person that we've ever known at some point or another will bug us. But if you love the person, you're like, yeah, and this too shall pass. We'll get through. It'll be fine. It will inspire us to work through the differences. If the love of Christ flows through you, you ought to have a loving, close relationship with people who think different than you do politically, who cheer for different sports teams who have different personalities and different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds. We all ought to be able to work through our differences because God's love is working through us. And then finally, it will encourage us to grow and mature in Christ. And what I mean by this is if God's love is really in us and we are in a loving community, and actually people annoy and irritate us or we annoy and irritate them, at some point or another in that loving community, someone should say, hey, it bugs me when you talk like this. And if we are loving people, we'll go, I'm sorry, what do you, what do you mean by that? Now, we're defensive people too, we're human. So our first response will be like, well, you're wrong, I'm right. But if we give it time, we'll listen to the person. And we'll let, we'll let them speak truth into our lives as hopefully we love them enough to speak truth into their lives. So this is what John says is in the household of faith. This ought to be true of you. But how about people outside the faith? How should we treat them? Jesus has an answer for this. This is found in Matthew 5. I I accidentally put it as Matthew 4, but it's actually Matthew 5. It, It says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This was a common expression. But I tell you, love your enemies. There's a lot of things Jesus said that I wish he hadn't said. This is one of them. But he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. Maybe no one embodies this truth better than the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And in the late 1950s, here's just a sentence or two taken from a sermon he gave in the late 50s. It became a book. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. You can't out-racist a racist. You can't out-hate a hater. You, you, you can't out-violent a violent person. Only love can do that. Embodied in the life of Martin Luther King, Jr. It is totally possible. it's just hard work. but but that's the kind of difference this kind of love should make in our lives. So let's, let's return to the definition one last time. Here's the work and definition of love. Love is, is the willful, wholehearted expression that honestly wants what's best for another. And there's two possible responses to this. Response one is, I don't have any of this in my life. Because I don't have God in my life, but I do want this in my life. So I need to ask God to come into my life. And if that's you, after the service, just come down front to this room or any of the rooms that you're in or online, let someone know. And we'll be happy to talk with you about that. But the other possible response is, I I do have God in my life, but this fruit is so malnourished. It's just a little seedling. And for that, you need Jesus. And for that, you have Jesus. And so it's just a simple matter of opening your life and your arms, your hands to him. And again, come down front and we'll be happy to pray with you. So I'm gonna ask our our prayer team to come down front in all of our rooms and I'm gonna close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity you've given us to come together and worship you and proclaim your name, to sing songs about you to you Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to peer into some key scripture and to challenge ourselves to be the kind of people that love like this, that this kind of love is within and flows through. Lord, too often in our culture today, Christians, those who claim to be Christian, are criticized for their lack of love. and Too often, that criticism is true. But Lord, thank you for the challenge to us to live this out. Lord, help us to have tender hearts, open hearts to respond to you, we pray. In Jesus' name and all said, amen and amen.